This is Writer Types, the crime and mystery fiction podcast. My name is Eric Beatner, and with me is author S.W. Loudon and Steve. Spring is in the air, and we have some authors on the air. So tell us who's on the show today. Joining us this time is author Kelly Garrett, who tells us how hard it is to clear her schedule to fit in this interview. I literally have nothing to watch on TV. I have nothing to clean. I have no one to talk to. And Alex Segura actually gives our podcast a compliment. I'm pretty happy with it. I feel like it's the best one. Unfortunately, Andrew Schaefer doesn't necessarily agree with Alex. It's never going to win awards. And you know what? I don't care. All that plus a look between the lines of Marietta Miles' novel May and our resident reviewers. But first, Steve, is there any uh, news to report from the Writer Types mailroom? Well, first, Mr. Beatner, I would just like to start by saying thank you for giving me the opportunity to work in the mailroom. <laughs> <laughs> one of these days, kids, you'll make it to the front office, I promise. Well, I did just get one envelope that was addressed to writer types, and it was a congratulations from the Anthony Awards saying that our podcast had been nominated for Best Online Content. Well, congratulations to us. Although I would have preferred an owl, like in Harry Potter, if they could have one of those owls fly in oh, and wow. tell us. Yeah, that would have been good. No, but on, honestly, it was it was a real honor uh, to find out that we uh, had been nominated. I'm just glad that the listeners are responding to it, and I think having as almost as much fun listening to it as we have making it. And we definitely want to congratulate our fellow nominees: Do Some Damage, Jungle Red Writers, Drew's Book Musings, and Bolo Books. We're honored to be in the same category with all of those, and we can't wait to wrestle. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait a minute, there's there's only two of us. I think there's seven Jungle Red writers and there's like 12 people in the Do Some Damage. We're, we're out of luck here. <laughs> First up is an author who is racking up the award nominations for her debut, Kelly Garrett. Kelly just secured yet another nomination with her Anthony nod for Best Debut Novel for Hollywood Homicide. And even though we're the ones who live in L.A., we caught up with Kelly from her home in New Jersey. Kelly Garrett, thank you for joining us on the show, and congratulations. You are winning all of the awards lately. Thank you. I don't know all of them, but I am very happy with the ones I have won. So. Now, are, are you recycling the same uh, speech for every award that you're winning now? No, I, I, I sound horrible. I've only won two, but um, I did not recycle. I don't plan speeches out. I think that's bad luck. Oh. I, I repeated thanking like my editor, and I think in both. But otherwise, they were both brand new speeches. So. <laughs> now, is this uh, this bad luck? Uh, is that based on experience? Have you? <laughs> no, no, I don't. I just, I always say like my one of my themes is like God has a sense of humor, and so I always think like if I go and write this speech out, then he's going to be like, ha ha, like you're not going to be able to use it, you know. So I just don't. Do you have any other superstitious writerly habits that we should know about? I don't think so. I mean, I'm like a writer who hates writing. So I probably have <laughs> no writer habits at all. Um, I probably should have some like, people are like, when do you write like nighttime or morning? And I'm like, I write when there's literally nothing else to do. Like, then I'm like, I guess I have to write because I literally have nothing to watch on TV. I have nothing to clean. I have no one to talk to. Like, let me write now, finally. Well, but is it true that you started your first novel when you were five years old? 
I knew when I was five, I wanted to write books. So I would, and even then, like I had such a short attention span that I would start a, the first chapter and then I would abandon it. And then I'd have another idea and I start a first chapter. And so there's somewhere in my mother's house, there's like a whole just notebook full of me, of first chapters of books that I had that I never was able to finish. And I kind of carried that theme throughout my life with having an idea not finishing it until um, Hollywood Homicide. So that was actually the first book that I really seriously tried to write and finish. So That's amazing because right there from five years old, you were actually practicing some pretty common writerly habits there. <laughs> I love not procrastinating and not finishing. <laughs> yeah, self-doubt. Exactly. Well, now, Steve and I live in Los Angeles, and we were about to give you some heat for writing a book about Hollywood, but you don't live here. But, you know, you've done your time in Hollywood. You, you, I have. I did, eight, I did an eight-year stint. So, and All I right. Just, so you've earned it. In uh, 2011. So, and people think that I live in L.A. still. Um, I think it's because the book is Hollywood Homicide, and I think hopefully if you read the book and you've actually been to L.A., you'll recognize that it's written by someone who's actually lived in LA and actually knows like La Brea and La Cienega. Well, what about your time uh, makes you think of homicide when you, when you think back on Hollywood? You know, I worked, I worked in entertainment. And so, um, you know, I'm not saying I wanted to kill anybody, but there are definitely a lot of people I met that I wanted to kind of maybe shake. Um, so, <laughs> so that was, I think, I think there's a lot of, of people who um, are, you know, great uh, inspiration. I'll call them inspiration. So. For murder. I get it. No, I, yeah. Not at the risk of trying to get you to dish with several microphones on, but seeing how Hollywood Homicide draws on your personal experiences in Hollywood, are there any real life celebrity experiences that inspired your books? The thing that I think is so interesting about Hollywood is that so many celebrities live there. So you'll just randomly see people. When I first moved to LA in like tw 2003, this guy invited my friend to a party. He just said, come to this place at this time, there's a party. So we get there and it's literally all these fabulous black people. And I'm like, oh, that person looks familiar. And it turns out it's Jamie Foxx's birthday party. Wow. <laughs> right? And so we're like, wait a second, how did we get here? And then I'm looking around and there is one white person there. And the guy is literally standing on the couch, kind of leaned back on the wall, having the time of his life with all these black people. And it's Tom Cruise. And like, so that's a situation where it's like, only in LA do you just randomly get invited to a party. And it turns out to be Jamie Foxx's birthday party. And Tom Cruise is literally chilling. That's an only in LA situation. Well, hold on a second, though. Isn't Tom Cruise famous for standing on a couch in another context he, as well? Yes, and this time he was a lot more calm. Like, he just seemed happy. I don't know what was going on. And I'm trying to remember when he jumped on Oprah's couch. It was around the same time. But, yes, that was my personal uh, Tom Cruise couch experience. <laughs> The heroine of your novel is Dana Anderson. Uh, she's an actress who, you know, turns now to investigating homicides. Uh, is there anyone in Hollywood right now who you think uh, might have a successful sideline in uh, solving murders? Gosh, um, I'm trying to think of like who's like just nosy enough <laughs> like, to just be like, let me see what's going on. I'm sure there are probably tons of people because especially with like, I don't know, gossip blogs and things like that. There are just tons of people who are um, 
out there and just nosy enough to find out like what's going on. So <laughs> do you think nosiness is uh, the the predominant characteristic? Not not having a Sherlock Holmesy kind of brain. You just want to know the gossip. I think Hollywood's based on gossip. I think for everything they people print, there's probably just even more interesting things that they don't print. So it sounds oh. like uh, you, you might have some hidden things in your own life that uh, maybe oh, we no, can try to dig out. About, I'm not, I know nothing about anyone. <laughs> don't try to get me in trouble, Eric. No. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, talking about writing what you know, you left a successful magazine and successful screenwriting career to write books. So what inspired you to come back to your first love from when you were five years old? It's something I always wanted to do. And like I said before, I'm a writer who hates to write. And so when I did magazines, it was, I'm going to do magazines until I write this book. And then when I was working in television, it was, I'm going to write you know, TV and be- until I write the book. And so that's what it was. It was more of instead of, you know, having enough balls to go the straight path, I kind of was veering left and right because I was kind of honestly afraid to do it. So, and it finally happened where I was just kind of, I had just turned 30 and I was over live LA. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go back to New Jersey. I'm going to get a steady job and then I'm finally going to write the book. And so that's kind of what happened. Well, so, okay, you move back to New Jersey and you commute into Manhattan. Does your daily commute literally to a different state, is that still shorter than going cross town in LA? Yes, because my, it's it's all, you know what, because New York is all about public transportation. I'd rather sit on a train for an hour than sit in traffic in LA for an hour just because I don't have to pay attention. You know, I can be reading a book or more likely on Facebook or, you know, Twitter and Instagram, so... You're not doing that writerly thing where you're just sitting there and looking at faces and thinking of plots and, and no, sort of writing in your head. I, again, I'm like the worst. Like not <laughs> all. Like, and it's funny because I do think the thing I love about New York is that you walk around and you actually do see people and you um, kind of hear most really interesting conversations. But I've yet to have one where I'm like, "Ooh, that's going to be a good book" or "That's a good idea." So I haven't I haven't eavesdropped well enough yet. So. We've talked about writing, we've talked about celebrity, we've talked about, you know, all the things that have to do with your books. And that's fantastic. But we're going to get down to brass tacks right now, okay? You're an admitted fan of early 90s R&B. Now, that is not a musical genre that Eric and I have explored much. So if you were going to give us a primer, what artists in songs should we start with? Um, Jodeci. Mm-hmm. Others Boys to Men, um, Motown Philly, TLC. Of course, everyone knows TLC. Early 90s, I was in middle school and high school. And so that's, you know, what I was literally listening to on, like, you know, the radio. And do you guys remember how you'd have to, if you wanted to record a song on the radio, you'd have to literally, like, have the tape player, like, waiting. And, like, waiting for, hoping that the the DJ actually plays the song. They don't talk over the beginning so you can record. (laughs) Like, these these kids today don't know the struggle. (laughs) Yeah, Eric, uh, you you were in junior high in the early '90s, right? Uh, I was in junior high in the early '80s. <laughs> oh yeah, I was sorry. I was just off by a decade. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, Eric, but after that interview, I really want to seriously jump up and down on a couch right now. <laughs> Does that make me Oprah? Yes. Can you please give me and all my friends cars? <laughs> Well, we did laugh quite a bit with Kelly, but for our unpanel this time, we gathered together some writers of humorous mystery books and asked them what it takes to write funny crimes. 
Hi, this is Bill Fitzhugh, author of Pest Control, The Exterminators, and most recently, Human Resources. And I'm here to discuss the secret to writing funny crime fiction. First of all, it helps if you're funny. Some people just aren't. So, don't try to write funny if you're not. Sense of humor is like the other human senses. In the same way some people have a better sense of hearing than others, some people have a more acute sense of humor. Keep in mind that humor varies. The way my sense of humor comes out in writing is different than how Donald Westlake's came out. So it's good to recognize and understand your comic voice and stick to it. And while I wouldn't say that a comic novel is like a very long joke with a long setup and a punchline at the end, the same principle kind of works for both novels and jokes. The setup has to engage the reader before the punchline undermines the reader's expectation. It's the surprise that makes it funny. I've got a scene in Highway 61 resurfaced where a PI named Rick is trying to catch a cheating husband. He follows the guy to a motel and he peeks in the window. Now he can see the man, but he can't see the illicit lover who appears to be on the floor licking peanut butter from between the man's toes. The reveal comes when she comes into view. The narrator says her hair was black and she had a tongue the likes of which Rick had never seen. And this was due largely to the fact that she was a Labrador retriever. Ellen Byron here, and uh, I write the Cajun Country Mystery Series, and Body in the Bayou and a Cajun Christmas Killing both won the um, Lefty Award for Best Humorous Mystery, and Mardi Gras Murder will be out in October. Secret to writing uh, funny crime fiction. Boy, you know, I always get nervous when people ask me that question because it's so hard to explain how to write comedy. I don't know, it just feels innate, but I think the first step is deciding what kind of sense of humor your protagonist has and what the other characters have. Is he or she self-effacing, sarcastic, clueless? Um, and then you write to that, and then when you have people who have different styles of humor, then they can react to the others. I have a character in my book who's kind of clueless, so that prompts a slight, you know, acerbic responses from my protagonist. And then also, I'll share something that was one of the first things I ever learned about comedy. And this woman, Lila Garrett, who's one of the old broads of comedy, taught us, put the funny word at the end of the sentence. Um, and that played out in one of my first jobs on a show called Flying Blind when uh, we had a joke that had the word snugly, but the word snugly was in the middle of the sentence. So I tapped into this knowledge I had and said, well, why don't we put the word snugly at the end of a sentence? And you would have thought I was a genius. So take that with you as one piece of practical advice. Put the funny word at the end of the sentence. Hi, I'm Mike McCrary. I am the author of the Steady Teddy series, Genuinely Dangerous, and A Thing Called Relentless, which will be coming out in July. Uh, so what makes for a funny crime fiction or a funny crime fiction writer? I can't remember the goddamn question. Um, I think a baseline, you have to start out being funny. I mean, that's kind of a duh answer, but I mean, if you, you know, I mean, you don't have to be Dave Chappelle or anything, but you, you, you got to have at least have a funny view of the world or have some interesting things or, you know, mildly amusing view of, uh, of how things are. Yeah, I mean, have you ever heard an unfunny person tell a joke? It's, it's fucking horrible, right? It's, it's horrific. Um, other than that, I mean, choosing characters, um, they don't have to be goofy, I guess, although they can be. Funny characters in funny situations or unfunny characters in funny situations. Johnny Shaw's Big Maria is a great example of funny on top of funny. On top of that, I, I think choosing the crime wisely. I mean, there are some crimes that lend themselves to funny better than others. There's some crimes that aren't funny at all. So, yeah, let's, let's, let's go corporate on that. Let's bullet point the whole damn thing. One, be funny. 
Two, choose your characters and situations wisely. And three, choose your crime wisely. As And that's probably good advice for life. There you go. This is New York Times bestselling author Andrew Schaefer, author of the humorous mystery Hope Never Dies, an Obama-Biden mystery. The secret to writing funny crime fiction is to never downplay the seriousness of the crime. The characters can be funny, but for my tastes at least, I think the crime itself needs to be grounded in reality. The reader needs a reason to turn the pages. The plot has to be solid. Some of my heroes include Elmore Leonard, Lawrence Block, and Donald Westlake, writers whose books are both funny and dark. One of my favorite mystery protagonists today is Daniel Friedman's Buck Schatz, an 80-something retired homicide detective. Buck Schatz is ornery, he's obscene, he's politically incorrect in all the best ways, he's hilarious. And the fact that Daniel Friedman writes really tight mysteries that deal with heavy subjects makes the books even funnier in contrast. Now, I've heard people say that humorous crime fiction is never going to sell like serious crime fiction. It's never going to win awards. And you know what? I don't care. Even if that's true, I'm not going to stop writing it, and I'm not going to stop reading it. I definitely like a little bit of humor with my crime stories. What about you, Steve? Definitely, Eric. And those four writers provide more than just a little bit of humor. A lot of their stuff is hilarious. Well, a book right now that's gaining all of the buzz, as they call it in the industry. That's an industry term, Steve, buzz. No, I'm an industry outsider, so I don't know the catchphrases. What that means is everyone's talking about it. And that book is Alex Segura's latest Pete Fernandez mystery, Blackout. Alex has been getting rave reviews for this ongoing series. We talked with him late at night, even later for him with the three-hour time difference. Eric, just so just so you're aware, it's 4 a.m. on the East Coast. That's how the- <laughs> Everyone in my house is asleep. Not for long, Alex. We're going to make yeah. you cry real loud. Let's get, cr- let's get crazy. Will this be the, the first interview we make someone cry? Oh, I hope so. Yeah. I am a crier, I guess. Really? <laughs> Eric and I are too. Oh, I'm not. Oh, good. We could just sob through this whole thing. <laughs> Alex, as we record this, we are only a few days away from the release of Blackout, the fourth Pete Fernandez mystery. Uh, now, we don't want to add to your anxiety, but uh, have you considered uh, what if this book is a giant flop and no one buys it? Uh, I guess I'm ready for that. <laughs> you know, it, I, uh, wow, that, you didn't start slow. Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, I'm happy with it. You know, I think that's really what matters. We kind of write the book we want to read and uh, I, I'm pretty happy with it. I feel like it's the best one. So if only I'm happy with it, then I'm good with that. Wow, what a mature attitude. Yeah, no, I'm uh, 100% serious. I mean, obviously that would suck if no one read it and no one bought it. It became this kind of mirage that, uh, you know, if the tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, like, is it really a book? Um, but um, I, that's how I approach the books anyway. It's it's kind of, I'm, I'm trying to just do my own thing and make it entertaining for myself. And nine times out of 10, that'll also entertain someone else, hopefully, so... Well, Alex, there's no doubt that the reviews that are coming in early have been amazing, the ones that I have read. So congratulations. Thanks. Uh, It also recently hit the trades that the Pete Fernandez books have been optioned for TV. So congratulations on that. Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah, that's it's crazy. It's um, 
it's so funny because the guys that optioned it are from Miami too. So that to me was like a huge selling point because they were around the same age. We kind of grew up in the same parts of town. So that was obviously, it just seemed like a perfect fit, but you never know how these Hollywood things go. So I'm optimistic though. Just to be clear though, really quick, Alex, when you say Hollywood, you mean Hollywood, Florida, right? Yeah, no, I mean a couple hours north of Miami. Yeah, yeah right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you didn't go out and buy a Ferrari immediately upon hearing the news? No, I just lent the books to a friend and they said, this is an option. And, and now here we are. Ta-da. <laughs> yeah, it's real. <laughs> well, I remember when Pete Fernandez started out in Silent City. And now here we are four books later. How has your relationship to Pete changed over those books? When I started Silent City, I didn't know it was going to be a series. I mean, I kind of thought it might be a series by the end of the first book because I liked how the main characters played off each other and, and I, I had another idea and that's really what kind of keeps it going. But I've really grown to have a lot of respect for him because he hasn't fallen into that cliche of the hard drinking PI. You know, he's actually, he's in recovery and he's, and that's not a, a linear process. That's something that you can stumble and you can fall back and make mistakes. And, um, you know, even Blackout, which is about him kind of being defined and cementing his role as a PI, is still still showcasing how even if you're not drinking and even if you're not in, you know, you're not kind of taking part in this vice, you're still getting better. And it's about him kind of realizing, you know, I want to live and I want to take advantage of this time that I've been given. And the contrast to that is that there's so many people that haven't been given that opportunity. And one of them is a case that haunts him. So... So to answer your question, I've gained a lot of respect for him, and it's probably because I've put him through a lot of messy situations and tortured him and tortured his loved ones. So the fact that he's still alive is pretty good, pretty impressive. Now, if if he were to ever meet you, do you think he would uh, appreciate what you've put him through, or would he be no. pissed? <laughs> no, he'd probably wonder, what the hell, man? You know, we, you, you, we kind of have similar backgrounds, and yet you still manage to torture me to no end. So yeah, he would not. we would not be friends. <laughs> So music always seems to be in the background of your writing and you have been a musician yourself. How, how does the music influence what goes on the page? You know, I, I can't listen to music while I'm writing. I don't know how you guys do it. Um, I, but I do listen to a lot of music while thinking about the book. So it's often I'm making playlists or I'm obsessing over certain artists. Like Jason Isbell has been huge while writing the Pete books for whatever reason, and PJ Harvey and uh, St. Vincent on this book. Do you have like artists that sort of speak to each individual book is it to kind of set a tone for just that story? Yeah, it's usually like four or five artists that I kind of hone in on, uh, but um, I use music a lot to visualize a scene. And I think it's, maybe it's, I'm thinking more cinematically, like what's the song that's gonna pair perfectly with how I'm visualizing the scene and the actors I've cast in the scene. Uh, and that really helps me a great deal just to set the tone. And then I can go back and think of it with that song in mind. Um, and Pete's a fan and I like that. And I like that he's a music nut and he he's into music and he talks about music. So music is a pretty pre ever present thing. That's a great lead in because as you know, Eric and I, uh, like you and Pete are yeah. huge music fans. So we thought we'd try something a little different with this interview. Um, Eric and I are going to name some bands or artists, and we want you to tell us the first word that pops into your head. I'm ready. This is are awful. you ready? Yes. Okay, ready. Here we go. Okay. Bob Dylan. The best. Wow. 
That would not been that would not have been my choice. And, and yeah, I don't, and in retrospect, I'm not sure that's accurate, but it was the first thing I thought. <laughs> you guys were going way beyond the word here. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. The okay. replacements. Sloppy. But that's good. <laughs> no qualifications. Sorry. Liz Fair. Oh, perfect. All right. Sonic Youth. Loud. PJ Harvey. Dark. How about the Decemberists? Hoity-toity. <laughs> That's is that hyphenated? Does that count, yeah. Steve? Is that, will we'll allow it? Speaking of hyphenated. <laughs> speaking of hyphenated, Sleater Kinney. Harsh. All right. How about the Pixies? Complicated. All right, and last but certainly not least, Bruce Springsteen. Blue collar. Great. I like it. Well, you also uh, steer the ship for Archie Comics, uh, which I, I you know at one time they were maybe considered a little bit square. I, you know, from from my youth, I sort of remember that. But now you've got the, the gang; they're hanging out with the Ramones and Blondie. How, <laughs> how do you decide which bands uh, you're going to let the gang hang out with? Yeah, it's kind of bizarre. It all started with Kiss, which is interesting, and that just came up because the CEO of the company, John Goldwater called me into his office and I, I did, I was only doing publicity at the time. And he said, we're going to do this comic with Gene Simmons. What do you think? And I just blurted it out. I think I want to write it. And at that point I'd written a few things and he was like, Oh, okay, sure. And he gave me the shot, which was great. And then we did the Ramones thing, which the, that was a byproduct of Matt Rosenberg, who was a co-writer. He had a connection with the Ramones and he said, you know, I think it's a perfect match. And so we, we came up basically with a wish list of bands, but there were some bands that said no or that just didn't work out in time. And so I still have a list of other bands I'd like to get to at some point. On that list, what's one band that you would love to pair with Archie, but know it's not likely to ever happen? There's two of them. Talking Heads, I would kill to have it happen because they're just at my absolute favorite band. And the second option would be the Beatles, because I just think that would make for a cool comic. All right. Well, Alex, b before we let you go, uh, it came up at the beginning uh, before we started recording that uh, this is actually your anniversary with your wife uh, of the day that you met. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, I, I just want to ask, because I know Steve and I share this thing where our wives don't read our books. Does your wife actually read the things that you write? She does. And she is actually the hardest editor I've ever dealt with, like the harshest in terms of just like finding plot holes and correcting things. And and what I love about it is she won't sugarcoat it. She'll never say, oh, it's good. You know, she doesn't give you the pity, it's okay. She'll say, this needs a lot of work. Like, and, <laughs> and then I'll fix it and then she'll say, okay, it's, it's okay. <laughs> so if I, I feel if I get a B or a B minus and I send it along to Jason and, and it gets published and I know it's in really good shape. Eric, I don't mean to break your heart here, but my wife actually is one of my first beta readers for every book I write. Oh, I thought oh, she was reading your stuff. <laughs> oh, it's just me. Oh, Everything's that's falling so apart. <laughs> well, it's time once again to call up our resident reviewers, Dan and Kate Melman. Let's just hope they have time for us between comic books and baseball games. Guys, anything exciting happened this week? I got the oil change. I went to the grocery store. Ooh. Oh, yeah. And uh, Killing Melman, our anthology, was nominated for Best an Anthology for the Anthony Awards, which will be handed out at VoucherCon. Shut up. Yeah! Woo! That was uh, very much a mind bender that happened, and we're 
um, legit happy just to be nominated. Well, that's great. I know I know that was a real labor of love for you both. So uh, congratulations. Yeah, it's awesome, guys. Thank you. And we're excited to be a part of the Writer Types podcast, which is nominated for the Anthony for Best Online Content. Wait, say what? <laughs> when were you going to tell me? <laughs> well, uh, wait a minute. This, this begs the question, if we're both nominated for projects that we both have had a hand in, which one of us is the secret sauce here? Ooh. I, I think we just pretty much guarantee that all projects going forward are going to star the Fantastic Four here. I like it. Well, so let's, uh, after we've patted ourselves on the back here, let's uh, turn and talk about some books. Now, I know you guys each have uh, brought a book that you want to talk about, and this time we're going to switch things up. We're going to start with Dan. So uh, what have you been reading? Today I'm going to talk about the debut novel uh, from uh, Charles Soule called The Oracle Year. Uh, oh, 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 Dan, Dan, hold on. I'm going to stop you right there because I know you think you're getting around Eric's strictly enforced comic book ban, but <laughs> Charles Soule is a successful comic book writer, correct? That's, that's amazing. Yes, that's actually true. How do you know that? <laughs> I do my research. Charles Soule is the longtime uh, Marvel exclusive uh, writer. He's, uh, what he did with the Oracle year is um, it's the story of, of a New York bassist, uh, Will Dando. And he was kind of a slacker musician, uh, wakes up one morning and he suddenly has 108 um, predictions, like just zapped into his brain. And he wakes up and he knows with absolute certainty what these 108 events are going to be. So, so Dan, we know you're a big Brad Meltzer fan. Yeah. And as luck would have it, Mr. Meltzer blurbed this book and said that it will, quote, make you reevaluate yourself. Do you agree with that assessment? It's a techno thriller. I mean, it, it's actually a hodgepodge of, of, of a bunch of different genre melting pot aspects. But I mean, it's whatever you want to latch on to, whether it's the thriller aspect, sci-fi, or mystery aspect of, of where did the predictions come from. When this kind of phenomena is entered into the world, then suddenly Will Dando is the number one superpower on the planet. And not like shooting rays out of his hands, but like as a political entity. I mean, the government is after him. The uh, bunch of different religious leaders band together because their whole religions are gonna crumble because there's a true prophet on the planet. Um, you know, so it's all of these aspects running around. So you can really latch onto whatever vibe you, you most relate to. Is this uh, being an oracle, having these uh, predictive abilities, is that a power that you would want to have, Dan? Absolutely not. No. It's more of a burden, it sounds like, to this guy. Absolutely. Here's the big question for you in this review. On a scale of one to five, what would you rate this book? I would give it a four out of five, would predict again. <laughs> nice. Well played. Yes. Kate, what do you have for us this month? So this month I have the fourth book by Alex Segura, uh, Blackout. It's his fourth Pete Fernandez book. Last time we met Pete, everything his life just kind of crumbled around him in, in Miami. Things weren't going well, so he's moved to New York. Uh, upcoming Florida politician comes to him, says, hey, my son's gone missing. I need your help finding him. Go. Before listeners think that we are all in and Alex Segura is somehow paying us to promote his stuff, because Alex is a guest on this episode, and I know that you've been a fan of these books before. Mm -hmm. is, you've read everything so far in the Pete Fernandez uh, oeuvre, right? I have. I have. 
I've seen a lot of people referring to Blackout as maybe the best of the series and, and a high point for Pete Fernandez so far. Would you agree with that? It is a high point. Um, and it, it is like the most solid of the four books. Blackout feels like the culmination of the previous three, three books that it's just kind of tied off Pete's origin story. Whether or not that was Alex's intent, I don't know. Judging from the interview that we had, it actually absolutely was Alex's intention, yes. <laughs> nice work. Good job, Kate. Very insightful. <laughs> well, and to prove you're right, Kate, let's roll the clip. One thing I always wanted to see when I was reading PI fiction is what's the origin story? You know, how did, how did Marlowe become Marlowe? How did uh, Lou Archer become Lou Archer? And you never really see that. And I really wanted to kind of zoom out and show the origin story. And it's really taken four books to show that. Like, so the fifth book is really Pete has arrived. One of the other things we discussed with Alex in our interview were the ways that his personal musical tastes intersect with Pete's. But do you, Kate, think of these books as having a heavy musical influence? Honestly, no. And, and, as, and that's just because I am... I played flute in high school, so maybe I'm a former musician, but not like you guys. That counts. Uh, Come on. Don't sell yourself short. Mm, you, no. you, you rocked out to some Jethro Tull. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Kate God. Was. I think Kate just officially joined the Bausha Khan band, and now we have to do a cover of Aqualung. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Kate Malman is a flautist. Her talents are seemingly endless. Kate Jethro Tull Malman. <laughs> oh, please let that catch on. I, I want everyone who's listening to this podcast to make that Kate's new nickname. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, it's time now to debut a new segment on writer types, Between the Lines. Now and then, we'll feature a writer giving us a little backstory on their latest book, and then reading a short section to illustrate that point. And where better to start in an episode debuting in the month of May than with a debut novel from Marietta Miles titled, of all things, May. We'll let Marietta explain from here. When we first meet May, we get the sense that she's worn out, worn down. She's buying a six pack of beer from a tiny convenience store on a remote barrier island it's the off-off season, and a powerful nor'easter is heading for shore. Most people have evacuated, but May stays. We learn of May's solitary and somewhat shady life, and watch as that life brings two bored kids on the downside of a nasty high right to her front door. One is desperate, the other is scared, and together they're trying to find May before the storm hits. How May got to this place is a large part of the story. She wasn't always alone, living on the edge of the world, fragile and vulnerable. We learn about the cuts and scars that pushed her to run away. She breaks your heart only to drive you crazy because she can't seem to get out of her own way. She has a history of shooting herself in the foot, making the wrong choices. I would say Ben was her first mistake, her very first downfall. You want to go with the others? Down to the creek? Sleepy-eyed Ben asks May. It's all dried up and they have a bonfire most nights. Mother's endless nagging continues to interrupt her sweet thoughts. Don't ride in cars with boys. Good girls don't do that. Boys don't really like that. 
people will see, people will talk. May isn't sure why Mother cares so much about other people. She seems to hate everyone. Ben keeps buzzing in her ear, and it's cool enough there won't be any mosquitoes. Sure, May says. Her tidy, perfect mother doesn't matter right now, but Ben does. May blinks her mother's voice away. Just hush up. He looks out the front window, then back to her. Good. That's really good, he says. After a second, he adds, You drink? I mean, I have, she shrugs, trying to seem relaxed. They'll have a keg. He looks just shy of concerned. It's okay. I'll be okay. I still want to go, she answers. Good. He grips the steering wheel and starts the car, revving the engine and tapping his fingers. That's Marietta Miles reading from her novel, May, and that book is getting some stellar reviews, so definitely check it out. Well, for our final interview this time, we stuck closer to home. Naomi Hirahara lives and writes about life right here in Los Angeles. That's right. We dialed her up early in the morning to talk about her latest and final book to feature her character, Moss Arai. Naomi Hirahara, congrats on the release of your final Moss Arai mystery, Hiroshima Boy. How does it feel to say goodbye to this character after so many years? You know, actually, I feel relieved in the sense that I wanted a good ending for it. It's inspired by my own father's life. So there's this personal connection. So, I, you know, some series, either they keep going and going, going. And as a reader, you're kind of wishing that they would stop, right? <laughs> and I didn't want that to happen. And it was really important for me for it to end in Hiroshima, which is a challenge. All the other ones are based in the U.S. or more specifically right in my backyard in Los Angeles, Southern California. One of my favorite things about the Maserai books is that they're set specifically in Altadena and Pasadena, which is where you grew up and where I currently live. So how has that area changed over the years and how did you sort of address that in the Maserai books? Yeah, it's really, you know, I heard Attica Locke speak about her books that are set in Houston. You heard her speak on writer types, of course, because she was a guest. Yes, I did. That's when I first heard it. <laughs> <laughs> But、uh, she was just saying it was kind of her father's Houston. So some of it's tinged with nostalgia. And I think with the Moss story, some of the, you know, Moss is an old man. And what's great about old characters is they have their, all these layers. Right, they they know what this area was like in、uh, the 1950s, the 60s, 70s, and so on. So Moss, even though things has changed in Moss's mind, he could you know bring up memories from any of these decades. So I you know in a weird way, although they're contemporary novels, I am bringing in the past a lot. Your new series、uh, features Officer Ellie Rush, and、uh, on the surface, it would seem that she and Moss are are not very similar. But I'm wondering if you see any similarities between these two characters. They're both underappreciated, underestimated characters, and I guess that's my niche. It was interesting. I was、um, on a panel, okay, at、uh, LA Times Festival of Books with Lee Goldberg. And Stuart Woods, right? We have a lot in common. And at one point,、uh, Stuart Woods said to me, and I think actually made it.、Uh, he he said it as a compliment. He goes, 
I have no idea how I can make an old Japanese gardener that character interesting. And I said, Yeah, that's my niche. You know, I have a heart for like ordinary people. In my writing, I seek to take that kind of invisible person and make them more visible. And we, we, we do put people who are either very old or very young, we, we really don't respect them that much. And I think that's what the two characters、um, experience Ellie Rush's、uh, bicycle cop. You know, so it's like, what's, you know, lower than a bicycle cop? And,、um, <laughs> Podcast and, host. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You mentioned your, these people the, on the margins of things. And I mean, you've, you've really embraced your own Japanese American heritage in your writing, but is, is that because you felt that you were underrepresented in the books you were reading? I think there's two things. Certainly, it's exactly what you said there is underrepresentation. But those other things, after I graduated from college, I worked as a reporter and editor of a Japanese American newspaper. So that was like a conscious decision I made. And actually, I learned so much about the larger community、um, beyond my own experience. And I, I don't see those kind of stories reflected in all their diversity in, in books. And you know, there's so many books about white people. Why should I try to compete? With all these people writing about white people, when I could, I know this community so well, not only because I am Japanese American, but、I'm, I worked for and with the community. So, why not bring that expertise to our genre? So, speaking of that expertise, you recently co authored the nonfiction book Life After Manzanar about the resettlement of Japanese Americans after their imprisonment during World War II. Um, is it hard for you to transition between writing fiction and nonfiction? No.、Um, actually, a lot of times the nonfiction informs my fiction. It, it's interesting. My first novel took me 15 years. And, you know, so it's fits and starts, and re- it didn't start off as a mystery novel. But I think what really helped me with the narrative, I kind of took those skills like, okay, I'm. I, I don't think I'm getting to the heart of who Masarai is. And I, I just pretended that I was interviewing him, like I would interview my subjects.、Uh-huh. And because I was so stuck at that point, it really kind of helped me to shape it. For our listeners who by now have figured out that you are a publishing machine, you have a short story coming out in the Akashic Books Santa Cruz Noir Anthology. Um, do you have a personal connection to Santa Cruz? My father was born in Watsonville, California, and、um, Moss is also from Watsonville. I think that's why the editor, Susie Bright, contacted me. But when I was、uh, thinking about it, you know, as a high no, as a young adult, I had gone, you know, to a Christian camp in、um, the Santa Cruz Mountains. You know, that's my direct connection. So maybe I should write something a little more. Uh, with a young person. So it's、um, set at a high school Christian camp and it's called Position. Well, now, Naomi, you were one of the guests of honor this year at the Left Coast Crime. Now, has this gone to your head? Should we, should we have been addressing <laughs> you as your honor this whole time? Should, should I get my award right there? <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't wear it around your neck as you go out? <laughs> yeah, it, it could, yeah.、Um, it was. 
very unexpected. And then they asked me, I go, oh, it's because they were scrambling. They were figuring out who, who can they put in this little slot. But the organizers assured me that wasn't the case. <laughs> But, uh, so I, I just feel really appreciative and of Left Coast. It was such a blast. And um, I think for me, I feel more comfortable sometimes when I'm the host of something. All right, that's it. Steve, you're fired. Naomi's my co-host. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was actually going to quit and nominate her, so I think that's, that's completely fine. Uh, Not if Naomi- I have to talk at <laughs> eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, we're almost done, but before we go, we wanted to tell you about some changes coming to our podcast. That's right. Thanks everyone who responded to our poll on Twitter and we heard you loud and clear. So going forward, we are going to go from one episode a month to two slightly shorter episodes a month. And that will start in June. So you can look forward to that with the next episode. I look forward to every episode with you, Steve. I look forward to the end of the episode, Eric. Speaking of which. That does it for another episode. What have we learned, Steve? Kelly Garrett taught us that you don't have to live in Hollywood to have an awesome Tom Cruise story. And Alex Segura taught us that he doesn't really care if nobody buys his books. But you should anyway. And Naomi Hirohara taught me that I might be out of a podcasting gig. Well, for the moment, this show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. We hope you're following along on Twitter and Facebook. For more on Steve's books, visit swloudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to ericbeatner.com. And hey, if you like what you hear, leave us a review, follow, and share. Thanks for listening. <laughs>